We're going to pick up in the book of Ruth uh, this morning, and we've been looking at the book of Ruth and considering it as a bit of a, a four-act play, if you will, or a four-act drama, and the way the chapters are written, it unfolds really well for us that way. So let me just review where we've been very quickly, and then we will uh, dive into what we're going to look at today. In Act 1, we saw the bittersweet start to the story, uh, where Naomi and her family were forced or chose to go into Moab to escape from a famine in Bethlehem, of all places. And while living in Moab, she lost her husband, two adult sons, uh, who had married Moabite women. And so she was left grieving and bereaved uh, with uh, these two Moabite women. Uh, But the famine was lifted by God. He granted food to uh, the land of Israel, and Bethlehem in particular, So she chose to go home, and Naomi chose to go with her, and that was the conclusion of Act 1. Act 2, we saw the story shifting towards hope. We're introduced to the other major character in the story, Boaz, and he treats Ruth and Naomi with just unbelievable generosity and kindness, Uh, and we begin to see some measure of hope begin to fill up the story. Now in Act 3 this morning, we will see the tension of the story on the way to a happy ending. And so as we begin to consider Ruth chapter 3 and the, the third act of this dramatic portrayal, I'd like to talk for just a moment before we get into the text about the kind of the universal struggle to rest. Uh, struggling to rest. You might notice that the sermon is entitled A Quest for Rest this morning, and that's very much what we see in this text. But at the end of the day, I think all of us just want rest. Whether after a hard day of work, we want to settle into a good night's sleep, or we look forward to the time at the end of our career for rest. We call it retirement. And sometimes we even think about death in terms of rest, the conclusion of a life well lived. We're all on a journey, a quest for rest, as it were. Every human being desires it, longs for it every day. And as it turns out, the Bible has a lot to say about rest. And it goes so much deeper and is so much bigger than simply ceasing from work or having a nap. The rest that our God offers us in Jesus Christ is fuller, deeper, bigger, and much more satisfying than a good night's sleep at the end of a long day or retirement at the end of a successful career. Ruth chapter 3 is framed by two references to rest. One in the first verse, one in the last verse of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter, we see Naomi, the older widow who is caring for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, another widow. Naomi expresses a desire to seek rest, not for herself, but for Ruth. I actually relate to that really well. Maybe you do too. I've often struggled to find rest for myself. I'm addicted to productivity. So sometimes I've had to have other people intervene in my life to provide rest for me. And this is the picture that we see as Ruth chapter 3 opens. Naomi seems to be coming out of her fog of grief. If you remember the earlier chapters of the book, Naomi has lost so much. She's suffered intensely. She's lost her husband and two sons in the span of ten years. That's a lot of grief. And in chapter 1, we saw her crushed with that grief and really unable to see beyond her own pain. Pain and suffering and grief have the ability to do that to us. 
It can lock us into ourself so that we are unable to see the needs of the people around us. And in chapter 2, Ruth takes the initiative because Naomi doesn't seem to be going to, doesn't seem to want to do anything. And Ruth goes out to provide food for them. She winds up in the field of a man named Boaz. And these are our central figures for the story, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And in chapter 2, we saw a glimmer of hope for Naomi. Boaz singles out Ruth for some special attention, and he provides ever so generously for her needs and for Naomi's needs with barley that he gives to her, allowing her to glean in his field repeatedly. Before we get into chapter 3, I want you to look at the end of chapter 2, just to remind you of where we are in the story. The last verse of Ruth 2 reminds us of a time span that we need to keep in mind here. Ruth 2, verse 23 says, So she, that is Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That little time marker that we might skip over very quickly is really significant. It indicates that Ruth is going to be visiting the field of Boaz repeatedly, maybe over the course of a couple of months, six to eight weeks somewhere thereabouts, day after day, week after week, she's going to go back to Boaz's field. Now, we don't know much about how they would have interacted personally, but we can imagine that Boaz would have been watching out for her, attending to her and making sure that she stayed safe and got the food that she needed to take home to Naomi. But when we enter chapter 3, we see something different about Naomi. Suddenly, she takes the initiative. It's the first time we've seen it in the book. And so it might be that because of the events of chapter 2 and in the time that has gone on, she's beginning to wake up. She's beginning to become concerned about something other than her own pain, someone other than herself, and she's looking after Ruth. But what we see in these first five verses is a bit of a scheme or a plot on Naomi's part. And I use those words intentionally. I want you to see Naomi's instructions and advice here, and I want you to raise your eyebrows at it. I want you to be skeptical about what she's telling Ruth to do. I'm going to point out some of the risks that are involved in what Naomi tells her to do here, and I want you to feel the weight of that. So we're going to look at Naomi's plotting and scheming here and try to see it for what it is, well-intentioned as it surely was. There are twists in this chapter, so rather than read the whole thing in full at the beginning, I'd like to just read in chunks. So let's start with verses 1 through 5. This is Act 3, Scene 1, Naomi's Scheme. Rest for Ruth. Ruth 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So in verse 1, we see Naomi's responsibility to provide rest. In verse 1, we see Naomi begin to take some initiative. And look at the way she words her reflections. Should I not seek rest 
for you. She's beginning to remember, I have a responsibility for Ruth. I am responsible to take care of Ruth. For the past couple of months, Ruth has been taking care of Naomi. Ruth has been taking the initiative and acting, and Naomi has been receiving the benefits. But Naomi has not to this point stepped up to take responsibility in any way. And it seems that suddenly she wakes up and remembers her responsibility to act in this verse, and it's a significant moment. But the way she words it is really interesting. And we need to back up and remember something that was uh, we saw in chapter 1. So she says, shouldn't I seek rest for you? Now let me remind you of how the story opened. As they were living in Moab and Naomi got ready to go back to Bethlehem, she wanted to send these two women that she was with away. Orpah and Ruth, these two Moabite women. She wanted to send them away, get rid of them, in a sense. But when she sent them out, or attempted to at least, she prayed for them in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. And I want to remind you of that prayer. Naomi had prayed, May Yahweh grant that you may find rest. So in chapter 1, when they were in Moab, so as Naomi is trying to get rid of these two women... You know, in her grief, in her self-consumption, she wants no part with them. She doesn't feel like she can take care of them. And if you remember the story, she, she feels like God was against her. And so she doesn't want these two women to be close to her. And so she tries to send them away, but she prays for them as they go. She asks that God would provide rest for them. Now, when we move forward in the story to chapter 3, we see Naomi getting up and saying, shouldn't I, don't I have a responsibility to seek rest for you, Ruth? What's going on here? I don't think that Naomi is questioning at this point whether God is going to answer her prayer. Think about that. It's been a couple of months. She prayed for God to provide rest, and now she's saying, I have a responsibility to seek rest. I think she perceives that very often God uses our decisions, our initiatives, our resources to accomplish His His purposes and to answer our prayers even. Isn't it true often in our lives that God uses our involvement? He involves us in the process of accomplishing His own purposes and even answering our own prayers. Very often we ask God to do things and then we shouldn't necessarily just sit back and become passive and do nothing and just wait and see what happens. Very often God wants to involve us. He wants us to get in the game, so to speak. And Naomi has been sitting on the sidelines for far too long. So she realizes that she's got a responsibility and so she steps up to act. But it's not that she's thinking, well, God's not going to answer my prayer, so I'd better do something about it. I don't think that's her attitude at this point. I think she's thinking, it's time that God would answer my prayer for Ruth, and he's going to use me and my involvement and my planning to do it. And that's the way God often works, I think, in our lives. We pray, we ask him to do things, and then we keep on pursuing obedience to him, We look and see what is my responsibility in this situation and we act expecting Him to use our efforts to accomplish His purposes and even to answer our prayers. And I think that's what Naomi is doing here. Well, in verse 2 she mentions Boaz, our relative. Notice 
She calls him our relative, a word that means uh, someone who's close to us. Now, he's also a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, but she doesn't mention that here. And I think that's actually really important to notice. We'll come back to that point. His status as a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer will come up again. But Naomi does not mention that here. And I think that's really important. Naomi mentions only that he is related to us. So is she seeking rest for Ruth? What does she think that would look like? What does Naomi envision rest would be for Ruth? Well, at least at some level, some part of it is that Ruth would have a husband, that she would have a home, that somebody would take care of her and provide for her in a way that Naomi cannot. And so I think she's envisioning a marriage of some kind with Boaz, and so that's what she's wanting to pursue here. Now, in verses 3 through 5, we see Naomi's scheme. And again, I want you to see the problems with this scheme that Naomi hatches for Ruth. Her desire is good. Her intention is good. She wants to seek rest for Ruth. But let's see what she tells her to do and see what kinds of issues could come up along the way when you think about what's actually going on here. She's aware that Boaz is going to be out winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This means that they've harvested their grain or their barley and they've piled it up in a wheelbarrow or a cart and moved it out of the city. Their field is located in Bethlehem, probably, and outside the city are these threshing floors. Now, as it turns out, there are several kinds of different threshing floors in the ancient world. And there's a few different kinds that we learn about in the scriptures themselves. The kind that is in view here is what we might call a communal threshing floor. Later in the story, Boaz is going to express concern about other people observing what's going to happen. And there are these threshing floors in the ancient world that are wide open spaces. Think something as large as this room, but round and take out the furniture. And so the idea is that uh, Boaz would have pulled in his harvest and piled it up maybe over there, and then another farmer would come in and pile his over there, and another one over here, and another one over here, and another one right in the middle. They would all kind of separate their harvest piles out in the midst of this communal threshing floor. Each farmer then would work his own pile, and his goal at the threshing floor would be to separate the heads of barley from the stalks, which would be the chaff, the part that needs to get rid of. It's useless, and they don't use it for food or for selling. That's the winnowing process that Naomi refers to. The threshing floor is on an elevated place outside the city, typically, and they do the work of winnowing late in the evening and into the night because that's when the winds are going to pick up a bit. And so they're going to begin doing the work of winnowing. So they'll, they'll take a pitchfork and they'll thrust it into their pile and just toss it up into the air. And then the wind drives out the lighter chaff and blows it off the threshing floor entirely. And then the heavier barley heads will just drop into a nice little pile in front of them. And so that's kind of what the work would have looked at that they would have done. And then they would have gathered up those heads and taken them back into the city to either sell at the market or to cook at home. So Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be out there doing that tonight because it's the end of the season. That's when he would be out there. 
But there are going to be other farmers that are going to be around at the threshing floor more than likely. So, Naomi tells Ruth to take a bath, put on some perfume, and wear something that covers her entirely, a long dress or a cloak of some kind, and go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. That is ominous. There's all kinds of danger in Naomi's instructions here. Threshing floors are notorious places in the ancient world. They're places where bad things happen. This is probably a good moment to remind you that this is all unfolding during the period of the judges. And so, during the period of the judges, bad things happen. And bad people do bad things in Israel, particularly to women. And the threshing floor is a place also where wayward women might go in the middle of the night. Men are gathered there who've worked all night and had some food and drink, and they stay there all night long. And very often, apparently, in the ancient world, wayward women would come to do business with the men that are there. This is not a happy scene. So, Naomi says, Hey, Ruth, get dolled up and go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. This is not a good place for a young lady to be in the middle of the night in the period of the judges. So there's your first concern as you hear Naomi's plot. She wants to seek rest for Ruth, but it might not go so well for Ruth in this kind of scenario or this kind of situation. The danger for Ruth, first of all, could be that other men might see her. Other men might spot her, and they're either going to assume why she's there, and if they do that, then her reputation will be tarnished. Or they might go to try to take advantage of her. And beyond this, Ruth was known to be a Moabite woman. And Moabite women are somewhat notorious for leading Israelite men into immorality. So she's going to try to hide out and keep herself out of sight. But she might not do that effectively. Other guys might see her and that would not go well for her. So there's great risk that Naomi is putting Ruth into just by sending her out to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. What's she supposed to do when she gets there? She's supposed to hide out so that nobody sees her particularly so that Boaz doesn't see her. And she's supposed to watch where he goes to eat and drink and then eventually where he goes to sleep. So typically in one of these communal threshing floors, after all the men have done their work late into the evening, they all gather in the middle of the threshing floor for a communal meal. They're supposed to be kind of celebrating the harvest, celebrating what God has given them in the harvest. That's the idea. And then when they're done eating and drinking wine... Into the late into the evening, they pitch a tent next to their own private little pile. They crawl in and they go to sleep for the night. And the farmers remain remain there themselves overnight to protect their harvest from wild animals who might come in, but also from robbers who might come in to steal the benefit of their labors. And so Ruth is to spot Boaz and watch where he goes to sleep. And then Naomi says... Sneak into his tent and steal his blanket. Can you imagine the kind of reaction that a man might have when a woman steals his blanket in the middle of the night? Maybe some of you men can. Especially when he doesn't know she's there. That's the crazy part. He doesn't even know she's there. And suddenly his blanket's been stolen. So, 
Boaz could see her there, and then he could assume why she's there, and he would probably assume the worst, given that we're in the period of the judges. Now, we've already been told in chapter 2, verse 1, that Boaz is a worthy man. So from the narrator's standpoint, Boaz is an upright, good man. So we would expect that if he's approached by a wayward woman or a woman he assumes to be a wayward woman, he's going to reject her. He's going to kick her out and get rid of her. And that's the exact opposite of what Naomi wants to happen, right? Ruth is to go in and hopefully find a good welcome there. But if he assumes, if he draws a conclusion in the middle of the night, waking up, being startled, he might draw a quick conclusion about why he's there, why she's there, and shoo her off and get rid of her. That's not going to go well for her. Or it might turn out that Boaz is not the righteous man we thought he was. He's a wealthy man. He's in his tent, in the privacy of his own tent. It's the middle of the night. Everybody else is doing it. Nobody has to know. This is a compromising situation for Boaz, too. Naomi is sending Ruth in to create a scenario that is filled with temptation. This is not a good situation. This is not a good plan. This is a scheme and a plot to create a private encounter between this woman and this man. Why? Why does she need to do that? Why all the scheming? Why the middle of the night? I think it's... Essentially, you can expect that Boaz, this wealthy, landowning male, and then Ruth, this poor, Moabite widow, if you think about their social status, they're as far opposite as they possibly can be. And so it's very unlikely that they're going to find an opportunity to have a private encounter in the middle of the day in front of other people. Now, in chapter 2, we saw such a conversation, but it was the kind of thing where Boaz is this elevated, righteous, good, wealthy man, and he's kind of reaching down to help this poor Moabite widow. And so it's an unequal social encounter that he initiates. But Naomi is envisioning a more equal level encounter between the two of them, a more personal and intimate encounter. And that's probably not going to happen in the middle of the day in front of a bunch of people. So, Naomi's best plan, her best idea, is to arrange a midnight rendezvous. This is not wise. This is foolish on a number of levels. And I want you to see that. Most of you probably know the rest of the story. You know that it goes smashingly well. And God accomplishes great things through this. But I want you to see that it's not because the plan was good. It's not because the plan was wise. It's not because Ruth followed good advice. It was because God did something awesome. Because God worked a miracle. And I want you to see that because that's true in our lives. So often we look back in our own story, in our own personal life history. We may look at the decisions that we've made along the way and we can be filled with regret about the things that we've done in the past, the decisions that we made, the bad advice that we took or even gave. 
And we can look back in despair. And we can think things like, if I had only done differently, if I had chosen otherwise, maybe God would bless me or something like that. And I think it's stories like this that are in the Bible, and there are more of them, a bunch more, where on a human level, if you just open your eyes and pay attention to the details of the text, you can see that what we're dealing with are humans who are doing things that are stupid and sinful. All over the Bible. And yet, God turns it for good. We can look back at our life and the decisions that we've made, the places where we've failed, and the places where we've maybe been led astray, or even led other people astray. And we don't have to be burdened with the guilt of that. We should acknowledge the wrong, but we should also look to God's sovereignty and how He works all of those things for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who love Him. Romans eight twenty eight. That's what's going on in this story. Naomi gives bad advice. Ruth follows bad advice, almost to a T. And God works out a miracle where everything goes beautifully. That's what God does. That's what He does in your life. That's what He does in my life. And so as we look back and we try to evaluate the things of our pasts, let us abandon the burden of guilt that we feel for things that happened in our lives that were either truly out of our control or were the result of following bad advice or we were involved in giving bad advice. This is a story of God's providence. When we look at our lives, we should see our lives as a story of God's providence. He is the author of our stories, and He only writes good ones. He's writing a good one in your life. So let's be careful when we read stories like this about elevating the human wisdom in the midst of the story. We want to shine the light brightly instead on God and how He works out Good, even through our mistakes, even through our foolishness, and even through our failures. He's big enough to do that, and he does that right here in this story. Now let me point out one more thing before we move into how the next scene unfolds. The end of verse 4, after Naomi tells her to sneak into his tent, steal his blanket, and lie down next to him, she just says, he will tell you what to do. Now, this is an enormous statement, I think, of faith. Faith on Naomi's part, faith in Boaz. She's counting on him to respond correctly. She's counting on him to assess the situation as it really is and that he's going to do what's right and what's best here. But she's got no further instructions for Ruth. And we might wonder, as Ruth listened to this, if she doesn't have some raised eyebrows at points. We wonder if she might have, we wonder if she might have thought, you want me to do what? But the text tells us, she says, all that you say, I will do. Let's see how things unfold. Act 3, scene 2. Ruth's reversal. Redemption for Naomi. Verses 6 through 13. In this section, we find two major twists. So let's see how this unfolds. First, we're going to see Ruth the blanket stealer in verses 6 through 8. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. So she went down to the threshing floor and did, just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I'm going to stop there, frame the picture here. She does everything that she's been instructed up to this point. She sees where Boaz goes. Nobody has spotted her. She's kept out of sight, and she's watched Boaz climb into his tent and go off to sleep. And then she crawls in the tent, apparently, and steals his blanket. And at midnight, don't know how long it took, but at midnight, he's cold. I had a blanket. It's gone. It's the middle of the night. We're outside. It's cold. And the ESV says he was startled. But the word could literally be translated, he trembled. That is, he shivered. He was cold. He turned over, looking for his blanket, trying to get it back. And it's gone. (laughs) And so he wakes up, starts to kind of become aware of his surroundings and the darkness. He perceives the form of a woman lying next to his feet. Now, when you read the word behold, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Let me remind you, when you read the word behold in the Old Testament, remember the narrator, the author, is reaching off the page and grabbing you, the reader, by the collar and saying, come here, look right here. And he's often putting you in the perspective, the viewpoint of one of the characters in the story. And so here, we get to see through Boaz's eyes. So we've been pulled into the story, and the narrator's saying, look here through the eyes of a particular character and through the eyes of Boaz, and what does Boaz see? A woman lying at his feet. This is disturbing. Obviously not expected. And so then we move on into verse 9, and we see a double entendre. So how does he respond to all this? This is where the tension begins to rise, and this is where we see our first twist. He said, and surely this was whispered, who are you? He sees a woman. He asks the appropriate question, who are you? And this is the twist. Remember, Naomi had told Ruth to do this, to wait until he wakes up, and then he will tell you what to do. Well, that's not exactly how it turned out. Instead, he asks a question, a reasonable question. And she answers in verse, the rest of verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So this is where the plot twists significantly. Ruth answers his question, first of all, by identifying herself, I am Ruth, your servant. She's telling him exactly who she is, and then she's going to tell him exactly why she's there. And this is incredibly wise on her part. You see, I think Ruth could have picked up on some of the bad things that could have happened, some of the risks in Naomi's plan. And at this point, she seeks to alleviate one of the big ones. Boaz might misinterpret why I'm here. Let me clear that up right away. Let me tell him directly why I've come. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Spread your wings over me. Now, what's she saying here? You've heard of a double entendre? When someone says something and they intend two different things that they expect the hearer or reader will pick up on and understand both. The first thing that she's surely doing is recalling something that Boaz said to her the first day they met, back in chapter 2. So this has been two months ago, but if you think about what happened at the field of Boaz back in chapter 2, this was a huge moment in Ruth's life. And so surely she's captured that moment in her memory. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, 
Remember some of the story there. He's singled her out for some special attention, commended her for her commitment to her mother-in-law, and poured out generosity on her. And then he prays for her. Chapter 2, verse 12. May Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he prays for her that God would bless her and repay her and fill her up because of the faithfulness she's shown to Naomi. And he adds this statement that describes who she's become. She has taken refuge under the wings of God himself. That is, she's abandoned her Moabite gods. She's abandoned her Moabite culture. She's abandoned her Moabite family. And she's come under the protection of Yahweh, the God of Israel. She has become a follower of Yahweh. And Boaz sees it evidenced in her obedience, in her faithfulness to Naomi. He sees that, he recognizes it, and he blesses her because of it. And now here, in chapter 3, Ruth is echoing that language back to Boaz. Spread your wings over me. And I think what she's doing is something similar to what Naomi did. She's going back to this prayer that Boaz had prayed for her benefit. And she's now saying, Boaz, I want you to be the wings of God. I want you to be the incarnation of God's protection, God's wings in the flesh, if you will. I want you to serve as my protection. She's reminding him of that blessing that he had pronounced all those weeks ago that was seared in her memory. And I think that's the first thing she's doing with this language, spread your wings over me. But if you're reading the NIV maybe some other versions as well, it says something different. It says something like, spread the corner of your garment over me. Spread the corner or the edge of your garment over me. You see, wings is not always a reference to bird appendages, although it usually is, but it also comes to mean the edge of anything, like the edge of a blanket or the edge of a cloak, the edge of a garment. And in their culture, if a man takes a cloak or a garment and spreads it over a woman, that is a way of proposing marriage. You know, in our culture, we get down on one knee and we hand out a ring. In their culture, they take their cloak and they spread it over the woman. At least that's one way they would have done it. It's a symbolic act of proposing marriage. Think about the symbolism. If a man takes his cloak and covers up a woman and brings her into it, he's communicating very vividly, I want to take you into myself. I want to take you into my home. I want to take you into my family. I want to marry you. And so Ruth is asking him to ask her to marry him. Lots of people look at this and they say, well, Ruth is then proposing marriage to him. But that would have been a cultural no-no. And everything in this story is done according to not only the law, but also to custom. We would be shocked if Ruth proposed marriage to a wealthy man like this. So it's not exactly what she's doing. Instead, she's saying, I want you to propose to me. 
She's being respectful. She's being very much aware of her place in society, but she's also being direct and clear about what she's after. She's saying, I need you to ask me to marry you. I need you to make a proposal of marriage to me, and then I'll say yes. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. And so both of those ideas are at play here. She wants him to serve as God's wings for her, to protect her by marrying her, by bringing her into his home and his family. So she's made her intentions really clear, and she says these two things. She says what she's there for, spread your wings over me, with all that that might mean, but then she adds another statement. Why am I, telling, why am I saying this to you, Boaz? Why am I here in your tent, as opposed to somewhere else with other, some other man, because you are a redeemer. Now, this is an important point, because the re- not only because the, the word redeemer is so significant in this story, but Naomi did not say that as part of her instructions to Ruth. And I think that omission is really key to understanding what's going on in this chapter. Ruth knows that Boaz is a redeemer a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for Naomi because of chapter 2. Naomi had mentioned it before. After Boaz had had a first meeting with Ruth and she came home with all this barley, Naomi informed her that Boaz was not only a relative but also a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, one who has the potential at least to fix a problem with their land, their family territory, and their lineage. Boaz is that guy. Now, Naomi had said that back in chapter 2, but she doesn't say that in chapter 3. And that's one of the things that suggests to me that Naomi is not thinking about herself at all in chapter 3. She's actually gotten out of herself completely, and she's looking out for the benefit of Ruth alone. She pointed out in chapter 3, verse 1, that Boaz is a relative. That is, he's someone close to us, And I think in the back of her mind, she remembers, oh yeah, he showed some pretty particular attention to you, Ruth. And so he is a prime candidate to take care of you, Ruth, with respect to Naomi's difficult, without respect to Naomi's problems, Naomi's difficulties. For him to fulfill the role of redeemer would be helpful to Naomi, not to Ruth, specifically. Now there are all kinds of legal complications here. The Mosaic Law doesn't seem to address this specific situation. It's got some unique wrinkles. This Moabite woman is a daughter-in-law to Naomi, and all the men are dead. The law did not envision this particular scenario and how to fix it. We'll see in chapter 4 how Boaz settles the matter entirely lawfully and even beyond lawfully. And we'll leave that to the side right now. We have a situation where it's possible, I think, that Boaz could marry Ruth and not deal with Naomi's problems at all, completely legally. That's the wrinkle in the situation. He could marry Ruth and not function as the Redeemer. But that's not what Ruth is asking for. Ruth wants both for him to be the Redeemer and also to be the one who provides rest for her. He needs an entryway into Naomi's family, and Ruth would provide that, potentially. 
But for this to work, Ruth would have to bear a son with Boaz. For Boaz to function as the family redeemer, Ruth would have to bear a son with Boaz. And if you remember, she was married for 10 years without any children. And her conclusion, like everyone else's in that culture, would have been that she was barren as a curse from God. So here, Ruth is exercising an extraordinary faith that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would grant her conception with Boaz. And we'll revisit that idea in chapter 4. But here, Ruth's focus is on Naomi's need, even as Naomi's focus was on Ruth's need. Both of them are showing amazing selfless love for the other. You see, Ruth had her own plan. Ruth had her own desire in meeting Boaz here and accomplishing this. And she's putting it into effect right here. The twist is that Ruth is going to reach out to solve Naomi's problem, even as Naomi was working to solve Ruth's problem. And Boaz recognizes this and he loves it. He thinks it's beautiful and he comments on it in the next verses. Verses 10 and 11, we get a picture of loyalty, loyalty between a worthy man and a worthy woman. Boaz's initial response in verse 10, and he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. And that's the Hebrew word chesed that is featured a few times in the book already. The idea of steadfast love or loyal love. The the core idea of this word chesed has to do with loyalty and devotion. And he, Boaz, is seeing it demonstrated in her actions here again. You have made this last kindness, this last act of loyalty, this last act of devotion greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, what's he saying here? I've read this story so many times and I used to see this as a verse that said he was expressing love. She was expressing love for Boaz. But that's not what it says. He's actually noticing that her actions are showing love and devotion for Naomi. She's seeking Boaz out because Boaz is a redeemer for Naomi. She's seeking him. She chose him because he's in a position to help Naomi. And he sees this as totally amazing. And he mentions, you could go after anybody. You could marry a rich man, a poor man. Now, why would she go after a poor man? Well, she could marry for romantic love, right? She could marry, she could fall in love with a poor man and she could marry him just because she was in love with him. But he says, you didn't do that and you're not marrying for wealth. Now, Boaz is a wealthy man, it's true, but she's not looking for his wealth to benefit her. She's looking for his wealth and position to benefit Naomi. And he commends her for it and asks God's blessing to continue on her through this. And then in verse 11, we get his response. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. So we see here, by the way, he says this, all that you ask, that he recognizes in her statement that she's asking for at least two things. Spread your wings over me. Ask me to marry you. And Boaz says, I'll do that. But she also said, you are a redeemer. And Boaz recognizes the implied request in that statement. She means... She implies, acts as a redeemer for Naomi. That's what Ruth is after. And he says, I'll do that too. 
Why? He gives a reason. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And back in chapter 2, the narrator called Boaz a worthy man. And now Boaz sees her as a worthy woman, a valiant woman, a woman of character, a woman of strength. Now that word can apply to resources, but she doesn't have any. And it can also apply to character, and that's what he's seen in her. There are only two other places where this phrase appears in the Bible, a worthy woman. They're both in the book of Proverbs. and One of them is the famous one, the heading for the poem that concludes the book of Proverbs, the embodiment of wisdom herself, the Proverbs 31 woman. The woman who exhibits the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. The only female character in Scripture who gets the title is this foreigner, the Moabite, Ruth. She's the only specific female in the Bible that gets labeled with that description. Woman of character, woman of strength, a worthy woman. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 poetically fleshes out the self-forgetfulness of wisdom, of God's wisdom. That's what that poem's all about. And don't we see that very thing in Ruth, in her behavior here? She's forgetting about herself and expressing strong wisdom in the way that she deals with both Naomi and Boaz. And Boaz recognizes her as a worthy woman. And in the story, as we get to read the whole thing, we should recognize that the storyteller is helping us see that Boaz and Ruth are perfect together. A worthy man marries a worthy woman. Happy, happy ending. Except it's not the ending. There's a wrinkle. Verses 12 and 13, we learn about another redeemer. So here's the second twist. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's another man who must be consulted. And this is where we see the integrity of Boaz on the table. We've already seen the integrity of Boaz a little bit. He was in this compromising position with this woman in the middle of the night in a private encounter, and he did not touch her. That's the kind of integrity that all of us men should seek out. You young men and young women, as you get into dating relationships, this is a model for how to protect the integrity and purity of another woman. Boaz upholds his integrity. The situation was ripe with temptation, that he could do whatever he wanted. He had the power, the status, and everybody else is doing it. There's the privacy that nobody had to know about it. And yet he does not touch her. That's a beautiful model for us to look at and how to treat women. But the second way that we see his integrity here is that he lays all the cards on the table. It, it shows that he reveals this identity of this other redeemer. He freely admits it. And he didn't have to. He freely acknowledges and points out there's another guy who's got a legal act legal right, a legal responsibility, in fact, to act as redeemer here. And so he has to be consulted first. This not only shows Boaz's personal integrity, but it shows his love for God's law, that he's unwilling to do anything for his own advantage. You see, I do think he could legally marry Ruth at this point, take her as his wife and disregard Naomi's situation and not be guilty in order to satisfy his own desires. But he doesn't do that. He refuses to do that. He honors Ruth's desires. Ruth is concerned about Naomi's well-being, and so he acts on her behalf. 
and he wants to follow God's law precisely. And so he says, we must consult this other man. But look at what he says next. What do we do in the meantime? Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. Now, we see here Boaz's concern that Naomi and Ruth together are taken care of. If he doesn't get to do it, that's okay. As long as they are taken care of, Boaz is going to be satisfied. But then he adds this. But if he is not willing, and the Hebrew is stronger than this. We could translate it a little bit more forcefully. If he will not delight in redeeming you. And that language suggests to me that Boaz is not just concerned to check off legal requirements. Boaz is not concerned that if this other guy happens to be one of those people that says, well, if it's the law, then it's the law. I better do it. Or if he's just going to say, well, I guess I have to because the law says so. That's not what Boaz wants. Boaz wants them to be well taken care of and cared for, not just a legal obligation to be put on somebody's shoulders. And so I suspect that if this other guy had acted that way, Boaz would have moved to persuade him strongly, maybe even provided a little incentive for him to give up his, abandon his obligation or his right of redemption. We'll see how that unfolds in chapter 4. But Boaz's concern is that they are taken care of effectively. And so he says, if he will not delight to redeem you, as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Interesting side note, there's only one other place in the Bible where anybody says, I will redeem you. It's in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, and it's Yahweh himself speaking to the people of Israel about what he's about to do in the Exodus. Boaz is very much acting like God in delivering Ruth and Naomi from slavery. Think about chapter 1 and how death dominated the story. The story of Naomi and Ruth is a story of people suffering under the slavery of death. And Boaz is going to act to redeem them out of that slavery. It's a beautiful picture. So, Boaz says, lie down until the morning. Her safest place is going to be to remain there. It's the middle of the night. He's not going to send her back into the town in the middle of the night. So he says, stay here. I'll keep you safe. And then we'll get up in the morning and deal with these things. So now we move into Act 3, Scene 3, Boaz's gift, a down payment of redemption and rest. So finally we come to the end of the story, verses 14 to 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, probably to himself, thinking out loud, he said to himself, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said to Ruth, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Let's stop there just for a second. We'll pick up the last verse in just a moment. You might wonder, why does he give her the barley? Because think about it. She's been gleaning in his field day after day for the last couple of months. They're well stocked with food. 
This is not because they need more barley, I don't think. So why? There's a reason stated in the text, and then there's a reason behind the scenes, I think. Just think about the picture again. She's going to be leaving the threshing floor in the early hours in the morning. And so they get up early enough where she's trying to leave before anybody can recognize her. Because again, there are other folks around, and there are going to be other folks who will see her in the town as she goes back in. So she takes this shawl or outer garment, and she wraps it up like a sack, and he fills it up with barley. So if somebody sees her on the way home, what are they going to assume? What's the conclusion they're going to draw? They're not probably going to draw the worst conclusion possible that she was a wayward woman who spent her night in the, among the men there at the threshing floor. Rather, they're going to assume that she was there getting some barley for her and her family. That's going to be the logical conclusion when people see her carrying a sack of barley. But the more important reason is the reason that Ruth reveals to Naomi. You see, we didn't see this reason unfold in the story. The narrator didn't tell us about this conversation. Ruth probably wondered, why are you giving me more barley? And apparently Boaz told her that it was a gift for Naomi. But look what she says, the way that Boaz had said it. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That harkens back to chapter 1. As Naomi had lost her husband, lost her two sons in Moab, she was bitter toward God. And she said, He has brought me back empty to Bethlehem. Boaz probably knows about that. And he says, very creatively, God is beginning to remedy your emptiness. God is beginning to fill you again. You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. It also serves as a bit of a down payment, a token promise, if you will. Again, they don't need the barley. It's a token of good faith that Boaz is going to do more. He's going to step in and he's going to provide full redemption for her and her family line. Interestingly enough, verse 17 is Ruth's last words in the book of Ruth. Chapter 4, we'll talk about Ruth, but she kind of fades into the background of the story in chapter 4. Naomi gets the last word. She had the first word in chapter 4, and she gets the last word in chapter, uh, in chapter 3, I should say. She replied, verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He will not rest, but will settle will bring the matter to its proper conclusion. He will finish it. The story is coming to its proper conclusion in chapter 4. We'll look at that next week. So as we look at this story, we read it as Christians. And so what do we draw from this? What do we see in this whole story that's been given to us, this beautiful story about redemption for Naomi, rest for Ruth, and how they all work together? When we put it in its biblical context, we ultimately see the promise of redemption and rest for all. So we're going to leave these two women for the time being waiting and resting in a man who will not rest. They must go to Boaz to find rest. Remember the story begins with Naomi seeking rest for Ruth. And so what does she do? She sends her to Boaz to find rest. I hope you can see the shadow of the gospel here. For the rest that humans long for, the redemption that we all so desperately need, we must go to another to find it. We must go to one 
who refused to rest until he finished his work, until on the cross he said, it is finished. That's how we find rest. And so we see a picture in Boaz's actions of Jesus. Again, Boaz is expressing loyal love to these women, these needy people, by providing just what they need. Rest for Ruth, redemption for Naomi and her family. The rest will come in the form of him becoming her husband. He's going to take her into his home and provide all that she needs. Redemption for Naomi. He's going to provide for her the family line, the continuance of her family line that she couldn't get any other way. And so Boaz is this beautiful picture of Jesus who provides the rest that we long for and the redemption that we need, the freedom from slavery that we all need. I want to close with a brief reflection on Jesus' invitation regarding rest in Matthew 11. Jesus calls out to all and says, Come to me. Just like these women had to go to Boaz, now all humanity must go to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now I don't think that Jesus' promise of rest there is just rest after you die or rest when the resurrection happens. I will give you rest happens right now. The moment that you begin resting in Him, the moment that you begin depending on His work on your behalf, that's when rest begins and it continues. The Christian life is a life of rest. And I don't think the rest that we experience is just about working six days and resting one. That might be a good idea, but that's missing the point entirely. Christianity is a life of seven days of rest, even as we work. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. That's a work image. That's a working metaphor. I will give you rest. Now get to work. (laughs) The Christian life is full of tensions. The Bible is full of tensions for us. This is one of them that we really need to hold on to in our everyday life. The Christian life is a life of restful work. Working and resting, not just in tandem, the balance of six days of work and one day of rest. And again, that might be a good idea, but that's not the point. The point is, even as we labor for the Lord, We are to do so in a way that rests in Him for the results. We're not seeking any favor from God by our work. We're not seeking a status before God by our work. We are working in such a way that shows it's not us and it's not up to us. We depend on the Lord for strength and success in our labors. And Jesus calls us to this life. Take up my yoke, go to work for me as you rest in me day after day after day. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the rest that we find in Jesus is not the ceasing of our work. Instead, we find rest in Jesus as we work. The rest that Jesus provides is a resting even while we work. The same is true of Jesus Himself, who said in John's Gospel, My Father is working, and so I am working too. The whole issue of rest for the Christian life is not about how much we work or how much we don't work. It's about how we work. Day after day, moment by moment, all of our life is a life of restful work. So as we think about the book of Ruth and this story and the way it comes to this beautiful conclusion that we'll see next time, what we find is that through Boaz, the rest that all people need will come. David is the last word of the book of Ruth. And he foreshadows in a big way Jesus the Savior who offers rest to all of us. So let's pray together and ask God to help us learn to rest even as we work. Father, thank you for the provision of rest, the rest that goes so far beyond the cessation of work. We acknowledge the goodness of work, the goodness of obedience, the goodness of laboring for the Lord, and we want to do so in such a way that you are honored and you are given credit for every every piece of success and fruit that is born in our lives. You deserve all glory. You deserve all credit. And would you help us to learn what this means in our everyday lives? Would you help us to give up the stress the stress that we carry because we think we're working to earn something before you or the stress that we carry because we think the results are all up to us. They're not. That's not the way you've called us to live in this world. So give us grace, Father, to understand. Give us grace to experience genuine rest, genuine faith that looks to you for all the strength that we need. We want to work in the strength that you provide. So help us to do that day by day and moment by moment. Would you show us again, Father, our Savior, Jesus, who refused to rest, to refu- who refused to stop until the work was accomplished, to save us so that we don't have to work to accomplish salvation, but that instead we can joyfully and restfully work out our salvation. Help us to do that. Help us to know what that looks like. Help us to do that together as a body here in this place, in the lives that you've called each one of us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.